0: Welcome to Rebel Roundup, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, in which we look back at some of the very best commentaries of the week by your favorite rebels. I'm your host, David Menzies. Well, with a simple tweet, President Trump says the U.S. is done with the war in Syria. Cue the outrage, as relevant as all the details. And the little Alberta town of Nisku was ground zero earlier this week for a pro-pipeline protest that saw more than 2,000 trucks roll in sheila Gunn reed was there to capture the anger that's now reaching the boiling point point. and some good news regarding that ongoing war on christmas some radio stations are lifting their ludicrous bands on baby it's cold outside amanda head shall explain all and finally we get your letters we get your letters every minute of every day and i'll share some of your responses about my attempt to get immigration minister Ahmad hussein to come clean about the U.N. Global Compact on Migration. And his response? Well, he locked himself in a room. And no, I'm not making this up. Those are your rebels. Now let's round them up.
1: Trudeau abandoned combat against ISIS while it was in the middle While ISIS was still powerful, he quit and ran away, and the CBC loved him for it. When I was in Iraq last year, I met a Kurdish general who helped beat back ISIS, and he told me that he was very well aware that Canada quit the fight right before the final battle. And he suggested that perhaps some of the men he uh, commanded would still be alive now, had they been able to benefit from Canadian jets coming in from the sky to take out clusters of terrorists. But the CBC knew better. It was wise for Trudeau to pull out. So what does the CBC say about Donald Trump bringing the troops home? They loved it when Trudeau did so before the final battle. Well, here's what CBC's flagship show called The National had to say.
2: Analysts fear the vacuum left behind.
1: President Trump is running his Syria policy as if it's a reality TV show. It's very deep, isn't it? Did you learn anything from that, or was that just another anti-Trump insult spoken by some leftist at a think tank?
0: And so it is that the war ends in Syria, not with a big bang, but with a 240-character tweet. President Trump is bringing home the 2,000 or so U.S. troops stationed there after the obliteration of ISIS. Yet this announcement has brought forth criticism from the usual suspects on the left and in the media party, because it would appear that no matter what decision Trump makes with regard to just about any file, this president just can't seem to catch a break. And joining me now with more on this story is our very own rebel commander, Ezra Levent. So Ezra, right off the bat, I have to ask, is the U.S. withdrawal from Syria a good move? Well, it depends what the goal was.
1: Hmm. And I don't think it's easy to find out what the goal was. Barack Obama Uh, sent the troops there. I'm not sure exactly why because on the one hand uh, under Obama one of the policies was to have regime change in Syria. That means getting rid of Bashar Assad who's a Soviet Russian colony, an Iranian colony. So how how are you going to do that? Because Russia had a lot more boots on the ground. They have a naval base there. They have an air base there. There's a lot of Iranians there. So um, are you really going to topple Assad? And if so like America toppled Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. Okay, then what? Hmm. Because it's one thing to, to break something, but can you you know the phrase you break it, you buy it. So America broke Libya, they toppled Gaddafi, and I don't think they thought through the second part. And Canada was part of that too, by the way. We sent uh, a ship and some aircraft. Okay, so Gaddafi's gone. Um, so you're expecting Johnny McDonald to emerge and say, "I'm a great democratic leader." So what exactly are they there for? Are they there to go after ISIS? Okay, mission accomplished. Under Obama, that wasn't what they did. Mm. Obama didn't go after, for example, the oil tankers. It wasn't until Donald Trump became president that the US military went ahead and crushed ISIS. Russia was doing its part too. So why are they there? And, it, and frankly, why is America still in Afghanistan 17 years after 9-11, the longest war in American history? Now, there could be a good answer to that, yeah. David. I just don't know what it is.
0: And you know, I would, that's the thing, Ezra, I see Afghanistan and Syria different. I mean, there's tens of thousands of troops in Afghanistan. Uh, Afghanistan, I don't see any hope on the horizon. You even have Americans training uh, um, people there that become cops and they end up turning into suicide bombers, stabbing Americans in the back. Uh, You know, that's a quagmire and has has always thus been. But with Syria, um, we have to ask, is ISIS truly 100% eradicated because the Kurds, are saying no. And this is the other troubling thing to me, Ezra. The Kurds have always fought with us. Mm -hmm. They have always been allies. We sold them down the river twice with the two Gulf Wars. And now I think we're doing it again. And listen, a 2000 um, member uh, regiment out in, in Syria, that's not tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops. That is not very costly. This is the thing I'm worried about. Somebody
1: filling the vacuum when the Americans leave and the Kurds paying a huge price. Well, that sounds compelling to me, and I've been to Kurdistan, and I've seen the Christian uh, and Yazidi minorities that ISIS went after, and I've seen how Kurdistan is the closest thing to a democracy and the closest, closest thing to a Western-oriented uh, group you're going to find there. Um, and they have the right position on ISIS, the right position on Iran, the right position on the Turks. I like the Kurds, at least the ones I saw in the week I was there in Erbil. Yes. I don't want to pretend that I know everything about the place. But um, that's if we have a pro-Kurdish mission, let's say so. But this wasn't a pro-Kurdish mission. In fact, uh, earlier this year, Kurdistan had a referendum on, or I think the referendum was actually, uh, I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was fairly recently, on independence. And America really didn't back it. Mm. So yeah, David, I too want America to support Kurd, the Kurds. And I think Kurdistan should be its own place. Um, But that's not going to be a decision based on troop deployments. It's a much bigger political, geographic, diplomatic decision. I I think we should help the Kurds. They're the closest thing to a friend the West has there, other than Israel, of course. Um, But having 2,000 soldiers, that wasn't their mission, I don't think.
0: And it's interesting you bring up Israel, Ezra. Is that maybe part of the plan that Israel is going to pick up the slack? I mean, they do have a presence there, and and, I mean, for self-interest in terms of their own national security. Um, And they certainly, I would imagine, not want uh, what's remaining of ISIS digging tunnels to get into Israel. So is that maybe who's going to be doing the heavy lifting
1: in that region? I think uh, Israel is more worried about Iran and Hezbollah. Those are the ones digging the tunnels. ISIS generally hasn't focused on Israel much. Um, Israel doesn't have ground troops in Syria. Israel sometimes shoots rockets or, or flies jets into Syria to blow things up that it thinks are a threat to itself. But, I mean, Syria is basically a Russian colony and has been throughout the Cold War. Mm. It's not like that was uh, an a area on the risk board that is switching sides. Yeah. They've always been in the Russian sphere of influence. So unless, I mean, in the 2016 campaign, Hillary Clinton talked madly crazily about put, uh, putting a no-fly zone over Syria Yes. to say, okay, no Syrian <laughs> jets, that whole Russian air base, you just sort <laughs> of forgot about that. Like you want to start World War III over what again? And, and I think that policy should start with, well, what are the, the objectives based on national interest? And there may be a national interest there, but it hasn't particularly been articulated. I think maybe it needs to be refreshed because in Afghanistan, 17 years later, I don't know what it is. But here's what's interesting to me is the left has typically been the, been the anti-war party. Yes. And they really hate the troops also, and they, they, but they pretend that they love the troops, hate the war, bring our boys home. Yes. They hate the troops too, but here's Donald Trump, who clearly loves the troops, um, but he's bringing them home. And so, so much of the dishonest left doesn't know what to do about this. Yes. Because in fact, Obama was a warmonger who did a lot more drone strikes than, than George Bush did. And the left didn't really mind uh donald trump brings soldiers home and says uh, trump's not afraid to flex muscles when he wants to he, he attacked Bashar's side a couple of times he's got yep. big sanctions on russia but the left shows their that they don't mean a lot of their ideals because they should be rejoicing about bringing soldiers home when they're not my view is if there's something that's clearly in america's interest yep. or for canada from a canadian point of view there's something clearly in our interest go and fight it can you tell me why we have men and women in Mali, Africa right now. What's the national interest? What's the objective? How do we know if we've succeeded or lost? Yes. And is one single Canadian life worth going to Mali for? And I think I, 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 think I know the maps pretty well. I'm so I couldn't find Mali on a map. I know it's in Africa. I know it's sort of Northwest Africa somewhere there. Couldn't find it on a Well, I,
0: I think we did a streeter on that, and yeah. nobody, yeah. All,
1: all the educated uh, intellects that Ryerson couldn't find it well, either. And, and it's not because they're dumb. <laughs> yeah. It's because there's 200 countries yeah. in the world, yeah. and Mali's a small country that has almost no connection to Canada. We have no big immigration from Mali. We have no trade with Mali. Yeah. We have no cultural, linguistic, historical connection to Mali, it makes no sense. It would be like Vanuatu yes. or Nauru, <laughs> those teeny tiny islands in the Pacific Ocean. You're not dumb if you don't know about them right. because they're completely irrelevant to us. And that's my point, what's the national objective? Um, there may well be a national objective for having American troops in Syria, but I haven't heard it in the last few days. And more to the point, Donald Trump campaigned. He said, crush ISIS and get out. He, he kept a promise here. You, you, and you might not like that promise, but it, but it was a promise he made in the campaign pretty clearly. What do you
0: make of the reaction so far Ezra? and this is still an emerging story, uh, things are still in play, uh, Defense Secretary James Mattis tendering his resignation to take effect in February. Um, and if you read his resignation note, it's basically, I thought it was kind of um, passive aggressive in its yeah. scathing uh, attitude that clearly I, you know, a 40 something year veteran of the military don't know as much as you. So I'll let you run the show. Um, that's how it came across to me. What? What do you think the
1: unspoken strategy here is in in his resignation, Ezra? Well, look, he obviously disagrees with this, um, and that's fine. Uh, In America, as in Canada, we have civilian oversight and direction of the military. And maybe Mattis is right, but the president is the commander-in-chief. And this really shouldn't have been a surprise because Trump did campaign on crushing ISIS and getting out. I think it's too bad because Mattis seemed to be a real serious military man and Trump could use someone with experience and, and competence and a track record. But I think Mattis was also, I mean, don't, don't think he wasn't. Mattis was uh, a part of the Washington establishment, the, the foreign policy establishment. And for 20 years, they've had this idealistic dream that they can nation build. And, you know, after the Second World War, the Marshall Plan, was an economic and political rebuilding. I mean, the United States drafted Japan's constitution (laughs) after the Second World War.
0: Um,
1: In fact, uh, it was an American general, MacArthur, who was the governor, if I'm not mistaken. Um, America helped rebuild Japan, Germany, helped fund it. So America did nation build, which was amazing because America was attacked by these countries yet rebuilt them and helped them. But there was something to rebuild. There was a nucleus underneath it, There there was a seed of liberal Western democracy. Japan was a little different because it's not Western and has a different tradition. But Japan has grown into a wonderful, liberal, democratic, civil ally, a great country. I've never, I've never been, I have no connection, but it's a wonderful place. And, and Taiwan, I think is similar. And Hong Kong had roots in the UK uh, as a part, uh, part of the British Empire. And Europe had a great liberal tradition. So you can nation build a wrecked Germany. Mm-hmm. You can nation build Greece, Italy. Can you really nation build in Afghanistan, um, which has no history of liberalism, democracy, um, high trust society, uh, you you know, the kind of Magna Magna Carta, uh, the the traditions of the West. You can't just graft that on to to Afghanistan. Syria is a little more modern. And that's actually what's scary to me is that And I'm sorry I'm going on here, but let me say one last word about Bashar Assad Um, and his wife, Asma. She was the subject of a beautiful vogue uh, spread, (laughs) the Desert Rose. That's my nickname (laughs) for you, but that's actually what what it was called. And what's striking about Asma Assad is she doesn't wear a veil, Mm -hmm. like not even the hijab. She wears nothing on her head. And if you look at family pictures of Bashar Assad's dad, the dictator Hafez Assad yes. and his wife, she didn't wear a, a thing on her head. Yeah. And they're Alawites, which is a kind of Muslim, but not really the kind that we're used to. They're a small minority in Syria. They, they drink alcohol. They are moderate in many ways. And Syria has universities. It allows Christians to be Christian. It, it's a dictatorship. I wouldn't want to live there. Bashar Assad can be brutal, his father was brutal too, but in that neighborhood, he's the closest thing you're going to find to a stable, uh, predictable tyrant as opposed to a zombie-murdering Islamic uh, jihadist tyrant, and you can knock off Bashar Assad like we knocked off Gaddafi, then what? Give me 30 more seconds on Gaddafi. Gaddafi was a little bit crazy. He would live in that desert tent. He was a terrorist. He knocked down the plane over Lockerbie, uh, Pan Am plane. And I lost a me. dear friend in that. I'm uh, sorry to yeah. hear that. <laughs> um, but you know what he did after uh, Bush invaded um, and, t- and talked tough, Gaddafi said, oh, I, I'm going I'm to change. He gave up his weapons of mass destruction program. He paid more than a billion dollars in reparations to the people he killed on that plane. Yep. Have you ever heard of a terrorist paying reparations before? Oh, Ezra, on this point
0: I agree. Uh, when the Obama administration went in to remove him, that was a declawed cat. And when he was gone, Libya became a cesspool of terrorism. And that's terrorism. my point, yep. is
1: that Bashar Assad I would not want to live under him. Yep. But I know he's better than uh, the alternatives there. And Donald Trump knows he doesn't have an alternative. Barack Obama didn't even think about it. Uh, let me g- close with this. Um, you know, the first time I ever heard about ISIS, and I, I don't propose to show the clip here because it's too terrible. I had not heard of ISIS before. Remember the first time you heard it? It was mm. probably in 2014. Really um, then, yeah. I heard about it from Vladimir Putin. Not directly. He talked about it. And he talked about cannibals. And he said, because, of course, th- there was Russians there and they have Russian bases. And he talked about an offshoot of al-Qaeda. ISIS came from al-Qaeda that is so radical that when they would kill a Syrian soldier, they would take out his heart and eat it. And I thought this can't be true. This sounds like some zombie movie or some witchcraft, but actually this ISIS soldier, soldier, terrorist, videoed himself on a cell phone, eating the still warm heart of a Syrian soldier. And Vladimir Putin said, this is the depravity we're fighting. Mm -hmm. And we'd, we'd like to hate Vladimir Putin, but I had never heard of ISIS before. I couldn't even believe it. And I saw the video with my own eyes and I still remember it four years later because y- it's shocking to see a human eating another human's heart. Um, that's how evil it is. Yeah. And you can say what you want about Putin, but he kills guys like that. You can say what you want about Trump, he kills guys like that. Whereas Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and even John McCain try to, well, we'll broker and we can, you know, we can work with them or whatever. Um, I think that Americans should focus on America. Canadians should focus on Canada. If there's some good people there, let's help them. But there are no good people in Syria. There's just degrees of evil. Yeah.
0: Well, Ezra, we're going to have to leave it there. And, uh, you know, folks, I guess that's the Middle East. It's uh, one of those neighborhoods, just when you think, you know, all the answers, somebody comes along and changes the questions. Hopefully I'm misreading this. Hopefully this doesn't create a vacuum for ISIS to get emboldened. And again, my heart goes out to the Kurds Um, They are ferocious fighters on the the side of uh, righteousness and we've let them down twice before. I hope this isn't uh, a third time we've let them down. Time will tell. Keep it here. More of Rebel Roundup to come after this.
3: Organizers of today's event say they are anticipating a 22 kilometer long truck convoy that will leave the staging area here at Blackjacks and will continue through Nisku loop back and finish at the Enzyme drilling yard where Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer will be speaking later on in the day. Now Nisku has really been ground zero for many of the layoffs in the oil patch in the Edmonton area. This. Industrial Park is situated directly between LeDuc and Edmonton. It used to be home to trucking yards and drilling yards and fabrication facilities, but now it sees some of the same levels of vacancy and unemployment as the office towers of downtown Calgary. The staging area for the truck convoy is right behind me. I know why I'm here. I'm a reporter for the Rebel. Media, but I'm also an oil patch wife. Let's find out why everybody else is here. So why did you come down to the Truckers for Pipelines event today?
2: I just wanted to show my support for oil and gas and Alberta as a whole and, uh, and the Canadian oil and gas industry.
1: Our industry it seems like we always get to be kicked down and we always complain about oil and gas, pipelines, so it's time we stand a rally and hopefully it does something here today. 30 years in the oil patch, we can't let this go. Like, uh, we've seen the ups and downs, but this is this is terrible. This is sad. The government's taking us for a ride. We're an important, integral part of Canada. This here, it, it's a killer on our, on our economy in Alberta. And it's just, it's ruining us. It's causing everybody to be losing their jobs and getting laid off. We need the pipeline build, built. Well,
0: to quote the chorus from that great C.W. McCall trucker song, "'Cause we got a little convoy rockin' through the night. Yeah, we got a little convoy. Ain't she a beautiful sight?' Oh, but that was no little convoy that rolled into the town of Nisku, Alberta. It was huge, numbering more than 2,000 rigs. It was all part of a protest regarding the federal government's outright incompetence in terms of getting vital pipelines built. And our very own Sheila Gunn Reed, host of the gun show. She was there to cover this protest, and Sheila joins me now. Hey there, rubber duck. Welcome to Rebel Roundup.
3: <laughs> Hi, David. <laughs> okay. Hey, I
0: I love that song. You know, at least I didn't call you the other character. I think it was Pig Pen or something. But, but Sheila. Can, yeah, yeah. In, in all seriousness, getting away from 70s uh, CB radio music. Um, First of all, that must have been one hell of a sight to take in, I mean, more than 2,000 trucks in that little town. What was the mood like in Nisku that day?
3: To be honest with you, it ended up being far greater than 2,000 because that was, those were all the trucks that they could get into the staging area, Mm. but there was such a traffic backup on highway 2 just outside of nisku that it backed up just about all the way to edmonton and it caused a traffic snarl (laughs) for about six hours there were that many trucks from all over the province so you know best estimate say somewhere around 3,500 trucks at the end of the day ended up being funneled into that convoy but to answer your question what was the mood like the mood was um they just want to work yeah. You know, like how do you describe the mood of people who are ready willing, and able to work, are the best in the world at what they do, but there are just no jobs for them. And there are no jobs for them because of federal government and provincial government incompetence.
0: And, and you know, when I saw you interviewing uh, these men, Sheila, I mean, my heart went out to them. These are the salt of the earth guys. They're yeah. such hard workers doing tough work. They just want to work it. And, and even though the anger was at the boiling point, um, yeah. you didn't see any kind of Antifa crap here of vandalizing or starting fires or you know doing graffiti they were very angered but they made an impassioned and very reasonable plea that they just want this government to get going on this file and sheila there is a lot of blame to go around for the justin trudeau government this is a majority government they have so many tools in their arsenal that they can employ but it's a matter of will is it not
3: it is and that's the thing these guys are like you said, the salt of the earth. They've never taken anything from anybody. They are the makers of Canada. They work hard, they create jobs, they pay their taxes, they always have. They've never taken a, a penny from the government. All they want to do is keep working and keep fueling the Canadian economy. And it, you know, it, it's so heartbreaking to see these guys who just want to work really, really hard and they can't. Um, but these are the same guys that Justin Trudeau said are a potential threat to any community that they come to. And I'll tell you, I never felt safer than I did amongst all those truckers that day.
0: You know, uh, that's a very good point, Sheila. And certainly you may, I think one of your best commentaries of uh, the year was from a few weeks ago, uh, where, you know, talking about uh, your husband who is in that sector and and how you felt personally maligned by Trudeau's Mm -hmm. comments. It's a different issue than than the pipeline thing, but what the hell was this guy talking about, especially since you were completely immersed in all these so-called predators, according to our Prime Minister, and yet, like you just said, you never felt safer?
3: Yeah, I'd have a real problem heading into a left-wing protest of 2,500 people. I would have to have security with me and probably not just one security person, but two. But when I was there, you know, it was very friendly. A lot of people telling me to say hey to my husband. And these guys are just doing what they can to send a message to the government. I mean, these are people who've never attended a protest. In their entire life and in 36 hours they managed to stage what could be the world's largest truck convoy and if this had happened anywhere else in any other country or jurisdiction in the world there would be political resignations because of the message that was sent that day and yet Justin Trudeau has hasn't even commented on it
0: yeah, you know, and, and by the way, you raise a very interesting point, I guess. You're, you have to worry about your personal safety at a feminist rally when some effeminate yeah. uh, little man with a nose ring comes up to you and <laughs> he slides you in the head. I mean, it's the bizarro world, you know. But, but know. you know, Sheila, uh, getting back to the um, the political issue here uh, of pipelines and, and what that means Alberta, and, and I mean, for goodness sakes, this is just about getting all this liquid gold to market. You know, it, it's not rocket science here. If there was some kind of um, terrible thing, a calamity that happened in the Quebec dairy industry or in yeah. the Ontario auto sector, would the Trudeau Liberals be having this uh, "Hey, what you gonna do?" Uh, kind of laissez-faire attitude, or would we see action to get this done, get this problem fixed within a few days?
3: You know, I asked the truckers that. I said, "Do you think that if there were this many Quebec dairy farmers?" or this many Ontario auto workers out there protesting for their industry, and we're not asking for handouts, we're asking for market access, which is under federal government jurisdiction. I asked them, do you think the Liberals would move heaven and earth to help you? And they said, yes. They feel that sense of Western alienation. They absolutely know that Alberta is being treated far differently, like the ugly stepchild in Confederation.
0: Yeah, and uh, conversely, um, Andrew Shear was out there, leader of the Conservative Party, mm-hmm. and he uh, delivered a speech that uh, seemed to almost look like he was uh, growing that which is known as a spine. Um, you know, it was very, uh, uh, I mean, there was a little emotion and it. it almost sounded yeah. like a, a campaign style b- speech. But what he was saying uh, was, uh, was right on the money, as far as I can tell. And uh, what was the, uh, uh, you know, reception uh, to Shear like?
3: Everybody was really happy that Andrew Scheer was there and speaking in uh, what used to be NISCU itself used to be one of Western Canada's busiest, most... productive industrial parks in all of the country. And instead he spoke at a drilling rig yard where many of the the drilling rigs are sitting idle. And I think that was an important message to send to Alberta that he's there to fight for us. And it was great to finally see him with some passion and emotion because all these men are looking for him, looking at him to be the one to fix this mess. And he needs to make some promises that he will.
0: Indeed, and and, and Sheila, again, I go back to these men that are just trying to provide for their families. They don't want a bailout. They don't want welfare. They don't want unemployment insurance check. They just want to open up the economy. And I can't think of any other oil-producing region on the face of the planet that this is happening to other than Alberta because of spineless politicians, uh, Sheila.
3: Well, Venezuela. (laughs) Well... (laughs) That's happening That's in incompetence, Venezuela? I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, that's government incompetence there too, but this is a free jurisdiction. This isn't a dictatorship. Um, so there's no reason why we aren't getting our resources to international markets, if not for the lack of political will by the federal government. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm more of a conspiracy um, fact-based person, and all the facts line up that it seems as though While Justin Trudeau makes these public pronouncements about how he supports Alberta's oil patch, all indicators point to the fact that he doesn't, and he's thrown up every roadblock along the way to prevent us from getting our oil to market, including changing the regulations halfway through the game on these companies. We just saw a massive liquefied natural gas project from uh, from Northern BC get canceled yesterday. Multi-billion dollar project. Nobody even seems to be talking about it um, because it's becoming so frequent, this evacuation of capital from the oil patch.
0: That is just so sad what you said, that indeed that is something that should be on the front page, but it just gets lost in the wallpaper of all the other multi-billion yeah. dollar canceled programs. You know, Sheila, we're gonna have to wrap it there. Going ahead into 2019, We know for sure, I I mean, I would bet Casa Menzoid on this, that we're going to get regime change in Alberta. Uh, I know 10 months is an eternity in terms of politics. Let's hope there's a regime change in Ottawa too. And maybe moving forward into 2020, we can start getting some of these projects off the ground and getting those great men uh, working again, which is all they want. So thank you again so much for this report, Sheila.
3: Thanks, David. You have a great Christmas, hey?
0: You too, my friend. And folks, keep it here. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this.
2: If people have spoken and media conglomerates, shockingly, listened. As I reported last week, CBC in Canada, as well as radio stations here in the United States, have re-added the popular and classic Christmas tune, Baby, It's Cold Outside, back to their playlists and rotations. We here at The Rebel ran a petition last week, and we are very pleased to announce that even though some Scrooges out there complained about the song initially, sales for the song have been through the roof, up on the rooftop. It's currently my ringtone, actually, so I'd like to think that I contributed to that. As reported by Billboard, their holiday digital song sales chart dated December 15th, they had three interpretations of Baby It's Cold Outside appear, the most of any other title, and they make the survey's three largest gains over the cycle, respectively. Dean Martin's version performed the best with a 257% increase with 7,000 sold. Idina Menzel, who was a Broadway star, she made the role of Elphaba famous in the in the musical Wicked. Her version is up 165% with 2,000 sold. And Redbone and Zoe Deschanel's version from the movie Elf shot up 130% with 2,000 sold as well. The three version sales have sent the song up the charts and their sales gain is up 34% collectively. Now on streaming services, Dean Martin's version is up a whopping 54% and many other versions are doing exceedingly well on streaming services too.
0: Hallelujah! It seems that if there was a bridge-too-far moment in terms of both the never-ending war on Christmas and the Me Too movement, then it was surely the attempt by the usual suspects To put the classic tune Baby It's Cold Outside on the naughty list. After all, somehow these nattering nabobs of negativity came to look upon this song not as a whimsical ditty about the art of consensual seduction, but rather some foreboding ballad hailing the merits of (laughs) rape culture. But the backlash has been massive since some radio stations began banning this tune. Baby, It's Cold Outside has hit the top ten in terms of digital sales. And get this, one Kentucky radio station decided to play this song over and over for two hours straight. Take that, Generation Snowflake. And with more on the ongoing lunacy regarding this innocent tune that was falsely rebranded as something sinister, Is our very own hollywood conservative amanda head welcome the rebel roundup amanda
2: why thank you merry christmas
0: and merry christmas to you too none of that happy holiday stuff either now amanda here's my take i'm gonna run it by you if this song had been recorded by say a transgender artist and it was about trying to engineer a romantic moment with another trans person well i think the progressive elite would be hailing this as empowering and daring and all the rest but because this song is focused on a timeless ritual of heterosexual courting it is being viciously maligned by some what do you say
2: yeah you know the reason that i decided to do a petition about this is because you know we we have seen this ever so subtle increasing war on christmas um and this song was the main target this year because people felt that the song's lyrics were Predatory and date rapey. Um, but I always tell people, you know, in any instance like this, you have to look at the cultural context and you have to look at it through the lens of the time and the place in which it was created. And this pertains not just to this song, but any song, any movie, really any piece of art. Um, a lot of people attacked this song because they felt like it was predatory, and and in this climate of the Me Too movement, of course, that is a concern. But what people didn't take into account is the context of the time and the humor that was utilized within that time when the song was written. So this was written in the 40s, um, and this was actually a stock joke that was used at the time. And I quoted this in my uh, in my petition video, but an English teacher went online and she explained the joke, and there have been a lot of people online who have gone further in the explanation, but she said uh, in the song, you know, the woman, she's having a really good time. She really doesn't want to leave. She, she likes this guy and she wants to spend more time with him. So she's kind of excusing her, her uncharacteristically, bold behavior by saying hey what's in this drink but the joke of it is is that there might not actually be anything in the drink and if there is it's a negligible amount that's that's the joke the joke is that there isn't hardly anything if anything at all in the drink it it has nothing to do with Date raping someone or anything like that, but we're moving into this era where uh, people are offended by so much. Um, you know, we, we hear every year this story turns around and, and comes about every Christmas season. It's a different city every time, where a city's manger scene, uh, re, you know, they receive complaints about it. This happened. I covered a story uh, about this happening in Washington, and people complain about this. And it seems like it's only because it's Christmas and it's a Christian holiday. Um, If someone put up a, a display of Dumbo in their front yard from the movie Dumbo, but your favorite movie is Snow White, are you going to complain about it? Does it offend you because that's not what you subscribe to? Of course not, but it's because it pertains to Christmas. It's a Christian holiday, and they I, I think that this snowflake generation, very appropriate for this time of the year where you guys in Canada have lots of snow, um, it, it's just appalling and it's sad, but I think we won Oh, because yeah. after we put out- yeah after we put out that petition video we had thousands and thousands of signatures and then a lot of the radio stations here in the united states as well as cbc and canada re-added the song to their rotation so score so raise hands
0: there is hope indeed but and and that's the thing on the loony left they seem to be going after things Amanda on a nitpicking basis I mean you mentioned the whole in joke about the drink you know I I think if Bill Cosby was the original artist that recorded it maybe then you've got something to hang a complaint on right but until there was a complaint until this band began I never listened to that song and interpreted it as some kind of nefarious date rape anthem and I would argue that even if that was a brand new song that had been recorded this year, um, I still think it, it's completely appropriate. It, it, it's, it's all about you, you know the, the the art of seduction. You know the you know the yeah. the, the dance. Millions and millions of heterosexual people and, and all kinds of uh, regardless of orientation get into. Uh, around the world and um, so and I want to talk about you know what you said when people complain and that's the other nub of uh, the argument that really gets me energized Amanda the Cleveland radio station one of the ones that started this they were acting not on hundreds not on dozens not on three or four complaints one complaint to the uh, program manager there, got this ball rolling. One voice from the lunatic fringe was enough to put the kibosh on this song that goes back some 70 years. What do you make of this gutlessness on the behalf of those in management that listen to these people in the first place?
2: Well this is this is the tyranny of the minority. We this has been emerging uh, for the last half a decade or so. One of the one of the first and I think starkest instances of that was when Target allowed transgenders to go into the bathroom transgenders account for 0.05% of the generation or excuse me of the population, but target catered to them, and so this has had a snowball effect all along. You have a very, very vocal minority, a tyrannical minority, and they have been able to to control things all the way into policy, and it's it's astounding, but like what you were saying, the lyrics of this song, if you listen to it before, before you were in this current context of being uh, perpetually offended. You wouldn't take offense to it, and even uh, I covered this in my video earlier. Joan Collins, legendary actress, she gave an interview uh, in the UK, and she said, "You know, what is what is this going to do to the art of seduction? Is this going to be carried out so far where you have to ask a parent's permission to kiss a girl? You know, and and this is something this it speaks to a broader issue of male-female or male-male, female-female, whatever." relationships where there's, there's this era of flirtation and that's how relationships begin with this type of like, you know, coy flirtation. And that's what this song is about. It is about flirtation. It is about, um, you know, the beginnings of a relationship during a magical time of the year. And, and it just seems like liberals want to destroy it all because they are miserable and they are bitter and they are perpetually offended by everything and they don't want anyone else to have any joy during the holidays. Oh,
0: and, and Amanda, I, I only say this half jokingly, but I'm sure the progressives, and this might even happen in our lifetime, that when it comes to developing a, a relationship on someone, when it comes to the art of courting, that you actually have a clipboard with a contract that the person signs and in initials, and even then, it might be challenged in court based on, um, did she have any kind of uh, alcohol in her system so she wasn't signing it under um, you know her full merits. So it, it, it is so sad that they are trying to wage war not just on christmas but on the human condition itself
2: yeah and you know it's it's sad and it affects relationships you know my boyfriend is an actor and in hollywood he has become so keenly aware and to such a heightened degree that anytime he corresponds with you know a female colleague an actress a producer you know he's on high alert because he's not sure w- what he says or what he does or the way that he interacts with them. He can't he can't be certain that you know they're not going to misinterpret that either intentionally or unintentionally. Um, so it comes to the place where you you almost can't even have one on one. You know if I had to have a meeting with a male colleague um, or you know David you if you had to have a meeting with a female colleague there I think that there's this hesitation now because you don't want to be in a one on one situation. Situation where you can possibly be accused of something
0: I uh, so so right Amanda and you know we have to wrap it here and by the way and this is what's gonna hurt women in the long run you know in terms of getting into the employment market a guy's gonna say listen if I have to go on the road do traveling with her have have a, a closed-door meeting with her it's just not worth the risk Heck, so-
2: we're not even gonna be able to get dates <laughs>
0: you <laughs> know it, it's perverse but Amanda at the end of the day uh, congratulations on you taking a stand on this and it is a good news story. we for once the uh, instead of the uh, you know the tyranny of the minority triumphing, the majority spoke out, mocked this, demanded change and we got it. So a merry Christmas to you indeed merry Christmas. And, and thank you so much for uh, taking up this worthy cause. My pleasure. you got it and uh, folks, keep it here. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. So, last Friday night at Ryerson University in Toronto, media were invited to a press conference staged by Minister Hussein prior to his Ryerson speech. But once he saw us standing outside the meeting room with other media, Hussein panicked. He made a beeline to another meeting room. And when he finally faced the music, he was more than half an hour late for his own press conference. If you could call it a press conference, that is, given that the minister decided not to take a single question. And after his speech, another curveball, questions were only taken from adoring Ryerson students. After the event was over, Hussein tried to give us a slip. We followed him back to that private meeting room of his while attempting to ask questions in a very polite fashion. uh, Minister, could I uh, grab you for a quick question, please? David Menzies, Wearable Media. Minister? Sir, can I just grab you for a quick question on a clarification point? Just trying to find out, does it mean that the legal rights of migrants that are being given in the compact are already... Well, sir, we we actually... uh,
1: It's a
0: private room. Private room. room. Well, we tried. His only response was, quote, contact my office, end quote. And we did so, emailing the minister those three important queries I've been trying to ask him for two weeks now. And knock me down with a feather, it's been radio silence ever since. How odd. Immigration Minister Ahmad Hussein says he's open to fact-based debate pertaining to the UN Migrant Compact. But whether we follow him to, all the way to Marrakesh or just down the road to Toronto's Ryerson University, Mr. Hussein just won't answer our very important questions about this pact and about what it potentially means for Canada. <laughs> so much for transparency. In any event, here's what some of you had to say about Minister Hussein literally running away from us. MTB Mickey 408 writes, according to the left, asking any questions about migration is xenophobic and racist. Well, Mickey, you have grist for the mill here. Remember when Conservative leader Andrew Scheer asked legitimate questions about returning ISIS fighters to Canada, only to have Prime Minister Trudeau smear him as an Islamophobe? So, yeah, with this government, We even have to tread carefully when it comes to being critical of hardened terrorists. West is Best writes, If the compact is not legally binding, why sign it in the first place? Well, two points here. One, it seems to me that bits and pieces of the compact are already enshrined in Canadian law due to Canada's previously stated obligations. And if that's not the case, could the Right Honourable Mr. Hussein? Stop trying out for the track team and simply answer our questions so we can get a measure of clarification here. But secondly, and ultimately, I would argue this, the compact doesn't have to be binding for the likes of Trudeau and Merkel and Macron. After all, they've already bought into the program that more mass migration is indeed the way to go. And Quebec Patriot writes, Menzoid, you are number one on their media re-education camp list. Oh boy, I always wanted to go to camp, Quebec Patriot. But really, do the federal liberals have to re-educate anyone in the mainstream media to play nice? I would say those journalists are already governing themselves accordingly, given that $600 million media slush fund that's coming down the pike. If you were someone employed in a sunset industry, would you dare bite the hand that now feeds? Well, that wraps up another edition of Rebel Roundup. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next week. And hey, folks, never forget, without risk, there can be no glory. Good night.